The Old Testament reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land his father, of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, uh, he was a boy with the sons of uh, Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And jo- Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave rose and stood above upright, or stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said what is this dream that you have dreamed shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you and his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept saying uh, kept the saying in mind the word of the Lord One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as, as we start this new uh, series on the life of, of Joseph. Joseph. And if you've been with us for, for a bit, you might remember that we've looked at the life of Abraham. We've looked at the life of, of Isaac and Jacob. And, and today we're going to finish up, not today, but we're going to begin a series um, that finishes up the book of, of Genesis and this last person it introduces us to, Joseph. So before we turn to this text, let us come together in prayer before the Lord. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the gospel it proclaims to us. We thank you, Lord, for for the way it it speaks truly about about our brokenness, our brokenness as, as persons, our brokenness as as families, and as broken people in desperate need of your love and grace, I pray, Lord, that you would apply the words, the teachings, the truths of this text to our hearts, and and I do pray, Lord, that what follows would be faithful to your intention to this text. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, today we begin a new series on the life of Joseph. And and as we'll see in the coming weeks, the life of Joseph is is ultimately a narrative of God's surprising and unsettling goodness. 
Joseph himself summarizes this truth well near the end of his life. With a, with a hard-earned wisdom, he will one day tell his brothers who did him harm, he will say, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And as we will see in the coming weeks, God saves the lives of many, many people because of everything that happens to Joseph. In particular, amidst a great famine, people have food to eat. But this truth that Joseph speaks, this truth of you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, this becomes a vantage point to, to see and understand the, the entirety of Joseph's life. And this is true for all of our lives, our lives in their entirety as well. I say this with, with trepidation, but we are not promised the lives that we think we want. What we are promised are the lives we need. We're promised the life that will conform us into what God intends us to become. We're promised the life that is good for us. And we're, pro we're promised the life, as, as unsettling and surprising as that may be, the life that we will one day be thankful for as we look back upon it during the resurrection. And so let's keep that in mind as we come to the first account in the Joseph narrative. We find a family, a family that like all families in a broken world has its struggles. And in particular, this family struggles very much with the father-son relationship. And I know these are not easy issues. Issues of the parent-child relations, they can be our very deepest wounds. And so I realize that sometimes what should be is actually a far cry in our own experience from what is. And my prayer is, is that I approach this topic with the proper sensitivity and I do ask your forgiveness in, in places where I do not. With this in mind, let's look at today's passage under three headings. The wounds of the father, the wounds of the children, and the wounds of the son. Let's look at those in turn, and let's start with the wounds of the father. To begin with, we are all wounded. We all carry deep relational wounds, even those of us who have the healthiest relationships. And the thing is, is that wounded people wound people. And more specifically, wounded people wound people in the very same ways that they have been wounded. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Jacob, the father of Joseph and his brothers. Jacob shows a deep and destructive favoritism for his son, Joseph. Of Jacob, here called Israel, we are told, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. Right from the get-go, it's clear that Joseph is the favorite. Specifically, we're told that he was the son of Jacob's old age, and, and most likely this points to the fact that, that Jacob was the youngest of, or Joseph was the youngest of Jacob's sons, that was, was old enough to carry out the family trade of, of shepherding. Joseph, in fact, does have a younger brother, Benjamin, who is the child of, of Jacob's even older age, we might say. 
And this dynamic also points to the fact that Jacob's favorite wife, his wife Rachel, she had children later than his other wives. And sadly, she died giving birth to Benjamin. Also, a very important quick note here. Genesis is not endorsing polygamy. It is not endorsing the taking of many wives. Genesis is actually condemning it. But it is doing so descriptively. For instance, Deuteronomy 17, it condemns polygamy prescriptively. It explicitly teaches against it. But again, the book of Genesis does this descriptively. It does it implicitly. We have to be good readers. Because Genesis shows us the many problems that come with this practice, how it does not make for a healthy family structure. And again, wounded people wound as they are wounded. In this case, Jacob carries on the polygamous brokenness of his grandfather, Abraham. And here, polygamy has led to a favoritism of the favorite child of the favorite wife. But this is not the only way that Jacob is wounded and the only way he carries on the brokenness of his family. Jacob also has a brother, Esau. Esau was far and away the favorite of their father, Isaac. Genesis 25, it it says this of Jacob and his brother. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac, Jacob's father, showed a blatant favoritism to Esau. Jacob, however, was was ignored and, and overlooked by his father. Isaac and Esau, they both loved hunting, but it, it doesn't look like Jacob or Isaac and, and Jacob had anything immediately in common. There's a quick application point here. I've heard it said before that one of the key ways that parents love children is by entering into the joys of their children. Perhaps you and your children both love hunting or sports or books or the arts or hiking or cooking. Maybe you share the very same interests. That's great. Lean into that. But perhaps you don't. Or perhaps you don't share the same interests as all of your children. Maybe you're a bookish parent that needs to learn how to love sports more. I can attest to this. I've I've had to learn to do that a little bit, uh, even as a dad with absolutely no coordination. Or maybe you're a sporty parent that needs to learn how to love books because that's what your children love. Maybe you have to switch back and forth between Harry Potter and Harry Carey. That's sort of become my own life right now. (laughs) That's okay. That's a good thing. This is also true for any other relationship in our lives, not just the parent-child relationship. For instance, if you have not read your spouse's favorite book, then you have not shared that joy together. And that's a deep kind of joy that actually binds people together, loving the same thing, sharing the same thing in common. And if you've never, for instance, taken an interest or asked questions about your friend's love of gardening or fishing or cooking or or anything like that, then you are not sharing that joy. And in some way, shape, or form, you're you're inhibiting that relationship. And when we think of, of Jacob, he's received none of this from his father. And this has wounded Jacob deeply. And sadly, what we see is that Jacob a victim of fatherly favoritism, 
goes on to perpetuate this very same fatherly favoritism in his own life. Jacob never really felt wanted by his father, and now he is making most of his sons feel exactly the same way. And friends, this goes to the very heart of parenting. John Tyson, in his very helpful book, The Intentional Father, he tells us where it is that we get this concept and phrase, raising a child, right? Raising a child is, is, is a phrase that we can often take for granted. We don't really know where it comes from. We don't really know what it means. But Tyson points out that it actually goes back to the ancient Roman practice where a, a newborn child was presented to the father. And then the father would actually do one of two things. Either sadly, he would look away from the child or he would take the child and raise it up in his arms. If he looked away, the child was placed outside to die a death of exposure. And this, of course, is a horrible, horrible, horrible practice, and Tyson says as much. However, if the child was raised by the father, it meant that this child was wanted. As Tyson puts it, this act communicated to the child, I want you. I want you in my life. I'm going to take responsibility for you, and I'm going to give you everything I can to help you grow up and mature. Again, every single child deserves to be raised in this sense. And this reminds us that when we speak of raising a child, we can't separate this responsibility from deeply wanting this child. You, my son, you, my daughter, are deeply, deeply wanted. You are loved. This is not something that you can earn. This is not something that can be taken away. Nothing you do can change this. You are wanted and you are loved. We might be providing for the physical needs of our children, but if we are not constantly communicating to them that you are wanted, then we are not raising our children in this deep sense. And so if you are a parent, ask yourself, and I have to keep asking myself, do your children know without a doubt that they are wanted? If not, communicate that to them in every single way possible. And if they do know this, if they deeply know this, then take heart. Because amidst every area of brokenness, you're going to have to address in a fallen world, and there will be many. You know that you have a strong foundation with your child to build on. And this is true both for young and adult children. Even during lunch today, if you are a parent, look at your child and tell them, ask them, you know that you are wanted, right? You know that I'm really glad you're my son or my daughter, right? You know that I'm thankful that, that God put you in this family, right? Even when it's hard, you, you, you know that I wouldn't want it any other way, right? And friends... Please communicate this very same message to the children in this congregation. If you are a member here, you are called to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to the children in this church. And so let us never treat the children here as a nuisance, but let us see them as what they are, great gifts of God to the body of Christ. 
And on the face of it, Joseph, he, he certainly seems to receive this from his, his father, Jacob. Jacob even gives him a special coat to sort of set him apart from his brothers. But this favoritism is not the way that we show a child that they are wanted. Certainly, Jacob fails to show this love and this want to the other children. But as we will see, he even fails to rightly, properly show it to Joseph. And that brings us to our second point, the wounds of the children. Well, let's begin here by considering the words of of St. Augustine as he reflects upon his experience of, of being a young man in his classic book, The Confessions. Augustine writes, What was it that delighted me except to love and be loved? This, Augustine tells us, is the basic shape of the human life, to love and to be loved. And God has so designed the human life so that the very first human relationships which we experience are in the family. Again, parents or guardians, they must constantly communicate to the child, you are loved, you are wanted. This becomes the foundation. And if you read the Confessions, you'll, you'll find that Augustine's own formative relationships with his parents, they go on to shape who he is. He can't understand himself, who he is now, without thinking about his relationship with his parents, the difficulties he had with his own father, and the unwavering love that he received from his mother, Monica. God's design is that the child would learn that there is a relationship so foundational and so unconditional that no matter what you do, you cannot ruin it or escape it or undo it, even if you run away or reject it for years. And friends, this is not easy. Often it is very, very difficult. And for some parents, if your child has intentionally separated themselves, maybe all that you can do at present is to cultivate that disposition of the father and the parable of the prodigal son. And this is hard. And I say this with with respect and admiration for such parents. Think about that father. When the father in the parable sees his son from afar, we read, the father felt the compassion and he ran and embraced his son and kissed him. The father has been waiting for the son. He has been working hard to cultivate a disposition of love and welcome in his heart, even amidst the deep betrayal of the son. And why? Because the son is the son. He's wanted. He's loved. Nothing can change that. Nothing. And of course, this is the very heart of God for us, his wayward children. But we'll we'll, we'll speak more on that later. For now, consider again Augustine. Before his own conversion, we find that Augustine is planning to move with his mother to Rome from the North African continent. But Augustine actually lies to her. He tricks her and he leaves Africa without her. He abandons his widowed mother in a very, very cruel way. And as Monica, his mother, aches for Augustine, often all that she can do is to wait and weep and pray. She clings to the words that were once told to her by a priest, a priest who tells her, the child of those tears shall never perish. 
This is the hope of, of, of every parent who sheds these tears. And, and my, my prayer is that this would prove true for the tears in this congregation. And friends, this is the unfailing, unconditional, and absolute love of the parent for the child. But what is it that we see here in Jacob's family? We see a son who feels that the love of the father must be continually earned. And we see other sons who feel abandoned. Let's first look at Joseph, who is, is clearly the favorite. What does Joseph learn from his father? Yes, he is wanted, but his brothers don't enjoy that same fatherly affection as, as he does. And so there must be something else. There, there must be something that sets him apart. And if, if simply being a son isn't enough, then perhaps he could even lose this affection. Maybe his younger brother, Benjamin. We'll take it from him. I mean, again, Benjamin is the father of Jacob's even older age. And this brings us to the question of, of Jacob's bad report of his brothers when he's shepherding the report that he brings to his father. Of this report, Old Testament scholar Gordon Winham, he says the following. It's not clear whether Joseph's report about his brothers was true or not. But the, the, the Hebrew term here, which, which Winham translates as tales, the Hebrew term is always used elsewhere in a negative sense of an untrue report. And here it is qualified by the adjective evil. So it seems likely that Joseph misrepresented his brothers to his father. His father believed him and his brother hated him. His brothers hated him for his lies. We might say here that Joseph tells evil tales of his brothers. And even more clearly, there's a kind of tattletale role that Jacob has placed Joseph within. Yes, I love you most, and because of that, you have a special responsibility to keep an eye on and to spy on your brothers. And so here, the father's love is also dependent upon a kind of service to the father. What's the result? Yes, Joseph is the favorite, and he will work hard to stay the favorite, even if it means he has to lie. What about the brothers? They unfortunately seem to have no chance of winning their father's affection. And so while the father's love is successfully earned and maintained by Joseph, it's completely out of reach from his brothers. What's the problem? None of these children have experienced that unshakable, unconditional love of the parent for the child. None of them knows deep in their heart that no matter what they do, there is a relationship that they cannot ruin or escape or destroy. They are learning that even the parent-child relationship has winners and losers. And this causes bitterness among the brothers. We're told that Joseph's brothers hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. And more directly in the Hebrew, we are told that they could not speak to him words of shalom. Shalom is the Old Testament notion of, of flourishing, of peace, of joy, of right relations and goodness. So bitter were his brothers that they could not even utter the smallest words of Joseph's well-being. This is because they didn't see Joseph as a brother. He was a competitor for the love of their father. Joseph was winning and they were losing. And certainly, you wouldn't want your competitor, your enemy, to do well, especially if he's telling lies about you. And so, siblings are made competitors and forced to fight for the very thing that should be given them freely from the father. 
And if this is true of their closest family relationships, if, if, if even the family itself becomes a space of competition, then truly this is true of all of the other relationships that we encounter. And let's look at ourselves here. As a culture, we often struggle to speak a word of shalom to the other. Just look at social media. And as a culture, we often feel no real obligation or responsibility to the, to the shalom or the flourishing of others. We treat each other like Joseph was treated by his brothers. For instance, Caitlin Tiffany in The Atlantic, she alerts us to a disturbing trend in modern society and she provides a sample social media tweet. I don't know who needs to hear this, but if someone hurts your feelings, you are allowed to get rid of them. Tiffany then goes on to explain that persons are hungry for definitions of toxic. If a person is toxic, then I can ethically cut them out of my life and I have no obligation to them. Their shalom is no concern of mine. And so what qualifies as toxic? What criteria allows me to banish a person from my love and from my care? Well, as the earlier tweet suggests, the, the, the conditions, the criteria can be quite minimal. Tiffany actually quotes a, a WebMD definition of, of toxic, a toxic person, and it reads as this. Anyone whose behavior adds negativity and upset to your life. Anyone whose behavior adds a negativity and upset to your life. It's going to be a whole lot of people. If a person produces in you any thoughts or emotions or feelings or experiences that are not anything but always positive, send them off. If they burden you with their needs and they don't help you accomplish your own goals and ambitions, send them away. Get rid of them. If their shalom in any way gets in the way of your own personal individual shalom, send them packing. But again... Any real relationship is going to bring all of these difficulties. And in a fallen world, the closer the relationship, the more difficult, the more intense the tears. This is just setting us up for complete isolation and loneliness. What does Jacob do? Jacob makes his sons earn what should be given freely. And we do exactly the same thing. The responsibility for the well-being of others, even family and friends, it's not really our problem. If, if we want to, we can kind of just dismiss it. What's the result? Well, the brothers could not speak a word of shalom, and we too find it difficult to speak words of shalom. Just like the brothers, we are angry. Just check out any 24-hour news channel. And just like Joseph, we are lonely. 36% of Americans report suffering from serious loneliness. That's where we are. And that brings us to our third and final point, the wounds of the sun. Yes, we are wounded. Yes, we wound others. But what are we actually supposed to do with any of this? Our gut reaction is to say that we only need to be loved. But remember, this is only half of the equation. Remember, Augustine said the core human desire is to be loved, but also to love. We've got to keep both of those things together. And friends, I don't mean to be insensitive here, but if our only focus is on being loved, to be loved, 
then this will only draw us deeper into ourselves. It will make our wounds the focus of our lives. It will reduce our worlds to, to, to our own personal suffering, and it will make us ignore and disregard all of the ways that we also wound others. Because here's a part, a key part of the Christian message. We have all been selfish and we have all wounded others. Like Jacob, we have all had our favorites and hurt other people in the process. Like Joseph, we have tried to win love at the expense of others. And like the brothers, we have all refused to speak a word of shalom. And friends, we have all refused to raise, to show that we want the people that God has put into our lives. And so what are we to do? Well, we actually find the answer in a surprising place, in Joseph's dreams. In Joseph's first dream, he receives a prophecy of events that will happen to him, events that we'll see play out later in the narrative. The sheaf of wheat that Joseph has bounded, it rises up, and the sheaves gathered by his brothers actually bow down to his wheat. And this will happen in Egypt. We'll see this. Joseph will provide for his brothers amidst a great famine, and they will bow down to him. But there's also a second dream. As Joseph recounts it, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But in response, Jacob expresses some disbelief about what this dream may suggest. Jacob says, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Even more, as the Joseph narrative continues, there's further problems with this interpretation. For instance, Old Testament scholar John Goldengay, he points out that Jacob never actually does come to bow down before Joseph. In fact, near the end of the narrative, what happens is that Joseph bows down to Jacob while Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons. But we can go further. Joseph's mother, Rachel, is dead. And so not only does Jacob not bow down to Joseph, Joseph's mother, Rachel, cannot bow down to Joseph. And so we have to ask, what is it that's going on here? And I believe the best way to answer this question is to look for another interpretation. The text has already led us to mistrust the report of Joseph about his brothers, and I believe here the text is leading us to doubt this particular interpretation. But then what can this dream mean? Yes, yes. Jacob will bow down. Yes, Rachel will bow down. Yes, each of Joseph's brothers and their tribes will bow down. But this large group will not bow down together to Joseph. They will bow down to the one who stands in the place of Joseph and the one who stands in the place of each and every one of us. But who is this one, and and, and what's with the imagery of the sun and the moon and the stars? We have to remember that biblical prophecy often works on multiple levels. It can refer to different things, multiple things. For instance, when Hosea speaks the words of God, out of Egypt I have called my son, we find this refers both to Israel's exodus from Egypt 
And Matthew tells us it refers to Jesus' flight from the murderous Herod when he tries to kill Jesus as a child. And here, too, I think we are meant, I believe we are meant to read two different events here. But in this case, two events that refer to Christ, not to Joseph, because, again, it, it, it doesn't really map on to Joseph's life. Why 11 stars? Well, when do we come across the number of 11 in its most significant form? It's the 11 disciples after the death of Judas. We, we, we just preached through this. It's the disciples before the cross bowed over with grief and sadness and lament. Okay, but, but what of the moon and the sun? Well, this too directs us in the cross. We, we preached on this just a few weeks ago. We read on the cross that the sky goes dark for three hours from noon to 3 p.m. The sun has ceased to shine upon the land in a symbolic event that signifies the grief of all creation. The sun bowed down, and it did not share its light. And if the sun does not shine, then neither can the moon. The 11 disciples in all of creation are bowed down with lament because of the death of the Son of God. But why would this one die? Well, Christ is God the Son become human to take upon himself the wounding of the world. He suffers the very wounded that we have committed, the the wounding that we have worked, the wounding that has separated us from neighbor and also from God. And so Christ, too, is separated, is severed from God and neighbor in our place. He's abandoned by all. He is cursed and killed by the very ones he has loved ceaselessly, even more He suffers a kind of rupture in the most basic relationship of all, a relationship more basic even than that of parent and child. This is the relationship between the human and God. Christ in his human soul on the cross, in some way he loses the favor and the joy of God the Father's presence. For the first time, Christ calls calls out to God, but he doesn't call him Father He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow in his human soul, he can no longer pray as he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, somehow that basic relationship to God's fatherhood has been ruptured for a time in his human soul. And so for once, for the first time ever in Christ's life, the heavens are silent and they're without reply to the voice of Christ. But Christ suffers this. He suffers all of this for us. He suffers the wounding that we have worked on others. He suffers the very wounding that separates us from God and neighbor. Separates from God the Father. Christ is the one who has lived the perfect life before God the Father. Christ is the one of whom the Father declares, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But Christ gives up the blessing of the Father so that he might give it to us. We talked about this in the children's sermon. In Joseph, at at this point in the narrative, we find the arrogant younger brother who takes all of the father's love for himself. But in Christ, in our true older brother, we find the one who gives up the love of the father so that he can lavish it upon us in full. God the father sends his own son so that he can bring us back to himself But that means that we must receive 
the gift of Christ. We must admit both that we are wounded and that we wound. We must admit that Christ has taken upon himself what we deserve. Only then, only in Christ, can we hear the Father say to us, you, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And this becomes the ground for absolutely everything else. No matter what your experience, no matter how well or badly your own parents did, regardless of whether you have been raised in the sense of being deeply and unconditionally wanted by those around you, regardless of all of these painful things, this is the love that the Father offers you and promises you in Christ Jesus. This is the unshakable confidence that the Father wants you and delights in you and loves you. And he does so because he is your good and great and gracious Father. And this is the blessing that Christ gives us. And this is because when the Father looks upon us, When we are in Christ, he sees the very righteousness of Christ. He looks upon you and delights in you with no condemnation. And this truth must even be the core from which we work in order to forgive those who have deeply wounded us, parents, friends, different people who have been placed in our lives. And this is not easy. This can be a lifelong process, but this is the shalom that God calls us to. And this also means that the church must be a community that moves out from this truth. We ourselves have wounded others, but Christ has taken the wound of our separation from God and neighbor, the wound that we deserve, not him. This means that the church must be a community where every member is raised, where every member is wanted, Perhaps even after this service, go and find someone here and tell them, I am glad you are here. I'm glad you are in this church. God did not make a mistake when he placed you here in this particular and specific congregation. And friends, if you can't actually bring yourself to do this, you do not yet understand the free gift of God's love and grace in Christ Jesus. If you cannot do this, you are making others earn what Christ freely gives. We are not competitors trying to earn God's favor in the favor of one another. No, we have received fully and freely in Christ the deep and endless love of God the Father, the love that we can never earn but can only receive through Christ Jesus. And so from this truth, we must give ourselves to others, speaking words of shalom to them, working for their flourishing. But there's more. It's not just the righteousness of God that the Father delights in when he looks upon us. He also delights in you personally. Because of the work of Christ, we are assured, we are promised a full salvation, and so complete is the salvation of Christ that it includes the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And in the resurrection, we will be the sons and daughters that God always intended us to be. We will be wholly loving and righteous and joyful. We will be like oak trees compared to our current existences as acorns. And this is also important in understanding the love of God. To go back to Augustine, he tells us that because God is outside of time, he loves those in Christ now as what they will one day become. 
Unlike us, God is outside of time, so the future day of the resurrection is no closer to him than today is. All time is equally present to God. God is eternal. And so even now, the Father loves us and sees us in our future glory. Despite every sin and hang-up that we now carry, God sees us and loves us as what he will one day make us. What we are now is unreal. What we are now is the shadow. That is what we will be and will be forever afterwards. That in the resurrection is the truest, realest form of who we actually are. And so if you are in Christ, God delights in you now more than you can imagine. And one day you will delight in Christ himself more than you can now imagine. Remember Joseph's second dream, it refers to two things. Yes, it refers to the cross, but it also points us to the resurrection. Yes, Jacob does not, and yes, Rachel cannot bow to their son Joseph. But one day in the resurrection, they will both bow down to Christ. Again, Augustine tells us that the great human desire is to love and to be loved. Yes, we are loved, but we are also called to love. We are loved by Christ and called to love Christ. And how can we not love Christ, considering all that he has done for us? Christ deserves the greatest praise and adoration that our hearts can muster. But even now, even for those in Christ, our wounds and our brokenness and our sin still gets in the way. But one day, beside Jacob and beside Rachel and Joseph and all of his brothers, Beside that family that used to be deeply broken, beside them, we will adore and praise and glorify Christ with a joy and fullness and delight that we cannot now imagine. This is what Joseph dreamed, and this is what Christ promises. As C.S. Lewis tells us, praise is the very fulfillment of joy. Praise is necessary for joy. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people you are with care no more for it than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. I think we've all had this experience. Joy is best shared and expressed together. And one day, we all will bow down to Christ, our King, who has loved us at the greatest cost to himself. And together, we will love and praise him and share that joy. We will tell one another about all of the evil that afflicted us in this life. And we'll tell about how it was used by God to make us what we now are. And all of those with us will say, yes, we know. What a wonderful thing it is to recount the ways that Christ, our King, has loved us even and especially when all that we could do was turn to him. Finally, on that day, in a way that we have always longed for, we will love and be 
loved. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Christ and all that he gives us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and call us to love. Help us to be a part of this beautiful movement that defines the human existence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.